Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged. My name is Niels Castro Larsen, and I'm recording this introduction to today's episode. And you'll notice it's a little bit different from my normal introductions. And there's a reason for that. The reason is that today's episode will be different from the usual episodes you come to expect from Top Traders Unplugged. Because normally, as you know, I tend to get a really great guest on the show to share their expertise and where we could put the focus fairly and squarely on their experience and their history inside the investment world. But today, it's actually me who will be the guest. Now, what happened was that a podcast called Economic Rockstar, where Frank Conway has built a really great set of interviews over the last four years. Uh, in fact, Frank and I started podcasting more or less at the same time on different topics, but slightly related. So I had the pleasure of being on his podcast a number of years ago. But recently, I was invited back. And since he was doing a little bit of a series on trend following, I thought this would be amazing to have the chance of telling my side of the story. And therefore, we recorded this uh, conversation in uh, about May of 2018. So I uh, would certainly encourage you to also check out Frank's uh, podcast, Economic Rockstar. There are a number of very interesting guests that he's had, uh, Nobel Prize winners like uh, Eugene uh, Farmer and Vernon Smith, among other very distinguished guests indeed. Um, it was definitely fun to be on the receiving end of the questions. And I really do hope that you uh, enjoy this unusual episode, and which was a chance for me to share some of the things that I have been pondering uh, when it comes to um, trend following investments and other things that we brought up. Now, there is in the conversation a reference to uh, one of the two books that I recently published, and there is a link being mentioned. And of course, as a loyal listener to Top Traders Unplugged, go ahead, use that link and download the book for free. It is my privilege to be taking up some of your time um, when you tune in and listen to the podcast. And it is a delight for me if you would take me up on the offer and uh, get the book. And I hope you will learn something from it. And more importantly, that it will inspire you to take some action when it comes to 
this investment strategy. So anyways, enough about me uh, for now at least. And uh, I hope you enjoyed this uh, conversation I had with Frank today. Thanks so much. Hello, Niels. Welcome back to the Economic Rockstar podcast. Thanks so much, Frank. It's great to be back. After all these years, actually. Yeah, I was just looking up the date and the episode, and it seems to be all 15s. Episode 15 on the 15th of January 2015. Wow. So, yeah, it's been quite a while. <laughs> it has been. It has been. Yeah, so uh, it's great to catch up again. I I've done it recently with some other guests, and they've written books and they've moved on and i wanted to catch up and see how things are going and likewise with yourself how have you been keeping yes i mean it's been uh, it's been busy i would say and 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 like some of your other guests for sure part of that is is that i have been uh, not only podcasting like yourself but putting uh, words on paper and and uh, released a couple of books uh, i should say with a couple of really good co-authors uh, one book called How to Master Manage Futures. I wrote that with uh, Catherine Kaminsky, who's obviously uh, well-known in, in our industry for having been a co-author to kind of the Bible of, of trend following with Alex Grayson of ISAM. And then also um, I did a book called The Many Flavors of Trend Following with a really smart guy called Harry Christenen. So those are some of the recent events. But no, I mean, besides my day job at, at Don Capital, and you know podcasting family life uh, it's been it's been good hectic but very rewarding for sure i'd love to touch on those books in a little while but maybe we'll catch up on a conversation that I had recently it's, it's this is kind of like turning into a mini series of trend following because i have another guy coming on next week actually niels he says he knows you from don capital as well michael melisinos yes I uh, have certainly come across Mike in my path, and of course, I came. I've come across your previous guest, who were also uh, Mike, which is uh, Mike Covell, of course. Uh, so, a, a theme of Mike's and a, and a theme of trend following. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah, and it's, I suppose it's a personal interest of mine as well. I've read up on some of this work. I've put them to to, to test personally, rather than doing any academic work on it. So really put my money where my mouth is. So I'd love to find out a bit more about trend following, especially given the work that you do in your industry. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think that one of the things is that as, a, as an industry, I think we've probably failed our community a little bit of investors because I think we have a tendency to try and overcomplicate what trend following really is. And it's certainly in my almost 30 year journey in this space, I've come to appreciate more and more trying to keep things really simple. I mean, I think deep down we're all trend followers, even though a lot of people don't think of themselves like that or even want to admit they are. But because any investment we make, we buy or we sell and we hope the market will move to a different level, whether it's in the short term, medium term, long term. And, you know, we can define that as a, as a trend. I know you can make it more complicated and people talk about, you know, serial correlation, momentum and all of these fancy words. But I think deep down, we just want to look for price action, directional price action that creates trends. And then the question is, how can we exploit that? And I think with the two books that I that you mentioned earlier, I think one of the things that I've really tried to do along with my co-authors 
is try to write it in a language that you you know you rarely come across in the finance world it's there's no fancy words or formulas it's really plain english but hopefully it will explain you know not only trend following but also the whole concept of what we know as managed futures and why it's so important to have as part of your portfolio now you asked about sort of uh, trend following in context of how we do it at at Don and 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 of course through through my own top traders on blog podcast I've interviewed a lot of my peers so I've seen different ways of doing it with varied success for sure but what I do find generally about the concept and the approach is that I I, I truly believe it's the most dependable and the most consistent investment strategy even though when people look at the track records they'll say well that's not very consistent at all well it's consistent in the way it behaves over long periods of time unlike i think many of the other investment strategies where you see it behaving in a certain way it could be a very smooth performance track record for you know five or ten years and then suddenly it drops 80 percent and as we saw earlier this year, uh, Frank, some of those strategies that had been performing very consistently or were very popular in the volatility space, well, some of these firms, they went out of business despite having a more than 20-year track record. But in one day, they went out of business. And then that's something we rarely, rarely see in the trend-following space. So the robustness of the approach I think is really undervalued by people because we all, as human beings, we all want to buy something that's nice and smooth and just goes up in a in a straight line but what has always been curious to me is that how people believe that they can successfully and consistently over time take markets that are inherently volatile by themselves and then suddenly magically put them through a formula and then all the volatility disappears and you just left with all the good stuff i don't think that's reality it could be reality for five or ten years but the people who have the really long track records in our industry, for the most part, I would say, are the systematic trend followers who apply not the perfect approach all the time, but but over time, it has seemed to be uh, working very well. And I know each trend follower may have their different approaches to entry and exits, but what would be the typical type of signal that someone could get into a certain trade or what would they have to look out for? Sure. I recall actually part of your conversation you had with Mike Covell recently. And I think you talked, and correct me if I'm wrong, you talked a little bit about using moving averages as some kind of indicator uh, for trend following. And, and there was a little bit of debate about that. But, I, you know, for me, that definitely is an approach of trend following. And I think that a lot of people incorporate moving averages uh, in their signal generation, I, you know, without listing all methodologies of, of how to do trend following. I think there's a few different ways to do it. Not not many, maybe five or six different ways. In, in the old days, say the 70s, this industry really came from the US. And in the old days in the US where it was a lot of traders who migrated from the floor and into the the more systematic or rule-based approach a lot of them were using some kind of breakout methodology it could be price for example we all know this the, 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 well i wouldn't say we all know but a lot of people have come across the turtle story hmm. with richard dennis and what he taught the turtles what we know today as a price breakout methodology where you're essentially just looking at you know, how high or how low has a market been trading for a certain period of time? And you 
by combining different time length uh, or look back periods, you can have smaller sub signals build up to an overall position by following those kind of rules. And I think that's a perfectly valid approach, it still works. And the other way back in the 70s, something we actually used at Don, which, and we still do, but what Bill Don came across was not price breakout, but actually breakout using momentum. So looking at volatility, and then once you have some kind of upwards or downwards penetration of, of, of a volatility level around a price using, again, different look-back periods, that would be your signal. But again, using different levels of volatility, different time lengths, and that would overall build up your confidence in your position and, and your position size. I think those methodologies were dominant back in the 70s and then the 80s. And then starting in the 80s, a more scientific approach, uh, if we call it that, came from the Europeans. I've had the great pleasure and, and, and fortune to interview the founders of AHL, which really is really is where I think a lot of the trend following slash managed futures industry in Europe can be traced back to. And I think they were taking a slightly different approach. They, they came from it more scientifically. They started using things like what we call time series momentum today, which I, I, I feel it's more of a European invention. And I think today we, we use a, a variety of these things. Uh, certainly we do it done. And, uh, and I think most people will use a combination of these signal generators. But what is really interesting, Frank, that I've come across in, in, in my journey, both from you know the, the, the insights of the firms I worked with, but also from talking to my peers is that I think a lot of investors believe that the entry point of a trade is the most important thing we do because it must be important as to where you get into the market. And my experience is that actually I think most trend followers at least, we probably identify the beginning of a trend more or less at the same time. I don't think that there is a big edge. You can be a little bit early, you can be a little bit late over time. Does it make a difference? I'm not so sure. But where I do find, and I think my, my peers will agree with me, is that the exit is the most important thing we do in trend following. Because the exit is really what captures uh, or defines how much of the trend we can capture. So this is hugely important when it comes to the profit or profitability of your strategy. Now, we need to combine that, of course, with risk management. So risk management is also very, very important and, and because the risk, by definition, shouldn't really be the same, you know, across the time that you hold on to your position. You need to adjust it, you know, during the time of the trade based on certain things. So I think the things that have made some managers really successful has been focusing on exits and risk management. It's certainly something we've done a lot of work at Dunn because for me, it's always stood as the weakness of trend following. There, you know, as much as I love trend following, I also recognize that there are weaknesses in the strategy. And the two main weaknesses in the strategy has always been reversals mm -hmm. when markets suddenly go against you and also the non-trending environment. So what do you do when there's just not enough trends? Many strategies, because they are kind of geared towards delivering a certain level of volatility or value at risk for that matter, they run pretty much at full speed all the time. Now, I live in Switzerland, so I'm surrounded by mountains. So the best analogy I can think of right now is it's like me driving on the motorway here in Switzerland. And I go at 
you know, 120 kilometers an hour, which is what we're allowed to do. But then I get to the mountain roads and I continue to do 120 kilometers an hour. At some point, I'm going to have an accident. Trend following is the same thing. If you don't adapt your risk levels from when there are lots of trends around to when there are fewer trends around, you will have, quote unquote, an accident whereby your losses will be disproportionately large. So I think those are some of the things that have set some managers apart, those who have successfully found ways to deal with these two weaknesses of trend following, they seem to be delivering much better returns, much better risk-adjusted returns. Because here's an interesting fact actually about trend following. If we think about the industry of CTAs a little bit as a gauge for, uh, you know, trend following, Beta 50 index, which is not the 20 largest, it's not the 50 largest as you might think, but actually the, around the 20 largest managers that index started being compiled in 1990. So we have about 28 years of, of data. Seven of those years are negative years. Now, what's really interesting is six of those seven has come after 2009 when QE started. Okay. So that's, that's so, very odd because you expect with QE, it almost acts as a, a put. Well, what, what QE has most likely done and I think there, I'm sure there are different opinions on that. But I think to a certain extent, I think what we can say that the central bank intervention have to some extent compressed the trading ranges to some extent. And therefore, it's been harder for medium to long term trend followers to do well in this environment. And also the other thing is that central bank policies became coordinated. And I think that's not necessarily a good thing. In in fact, Catherine Kaminsky, whom I, I wrote one of the books with, has done a lot of work on, on this whole thing about convergent and divergent risk, which actually, funnily enough, you and I talked about on our first podcast uh, a, a few years back. And so convergent risk, just for people who, who may not come across this, convergent risk is really risk that you think you know. I mean, you if you think a, a certain event or, uh, you know, a certain economic environment will mean, you know, that the price of a stock or a market will go up, you're really sure that that's what's going to happen. And you can take then certain decisions based on that view. Now, the trend following world, we come from a completely different point of view. We we come we look for divergent risk or we 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 acknowledge that we know nothing. We have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. So we build systems accordingly. And therefore, you know, what what I what I see now in the world of central bank policies starting to, you know, go their own way and do their own thing, I see more divergence coming back to the market. And that actually for me is really important. I think a lot of people believe that strategies like trend following, that we're just long volatility and as long as it's volatile, we'll do well. That's not really the case. But what we are long of, I, I believe, is divergence, meaning we want markets to do their own thing. We don't want markets to be highly correlated necessarily because that creates also risks for uh, when the reversals happen, like we saw in February of this year. So, you know, so I'm cautiously optimistic, generally speaking, for, for our industry about what's happening right now with, with a bit more divergence coming back into the markets. It's the time element. You touched on it there earlier on. 
Like, for example, when QE started, if anyone looked at a, a chart, whether it's in a log form or in, in price levels, and they see that stock market chart, say, from 2009 up to present day, okay, there's been a couple of dips along the way, but it's effectively the returns on the markets have been nearly have been double digits year on year really and it almost look looks like a trend line if you were to draw a line through it so why is it that trend followers are having a, a tough time during this period with qe and central bank intervention i know you kind of touched on a bit of divergent and convergent risk but if you were to put in a a, a straight line you could see this trend having emerged over that time period or is this something that a, a trend follower would look at a, a shorter time horizon and try to spot trends within a price action and that price action kind of moves and disrupts your views, yeah? Sure. I, th- I think there's a couple of things that are important in, in that sense. When when we look at trend following as a whole, we don't just look at equities, right? We look at a variety of markets. Um, most of the larger firms today are invested in in all sectors, I mean, the really big ones probably can't get enough exposure to to the sectors like commodities, et cetera, et cetera. So there may be some more reliance on on equities and, and bonds and and and, and uh, foreign exchange. But equities, I agree with you. If you just look at a at a big chart, it looks pretty orderly, and it has been orderly. So you know, part of that journey has been orderly. For example, two thousand and seventeen. I would guess that most trend followers made most of their money in equities. We we certainly did at, at Don, but it's just one sector. Yes. So so if you have all the other sectors not doing so well, overall it's not going to be well. But I will say, I mean, I have to caveat that a little bit. It's been difficult for the industry. It doesn't mean it's been difficult for everyone. And I don't want this to be, you know, turn into a promotion for 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 the company I work for. But I mean, we've done very very well. So so it's not all bad news. It's just that when I look at it as an industry, it's been challenging, and the returns have come down. Also, we should not forget that in the track records you see from managed futures managers, and indeed probably for most hedge funds, the risk free rate of return is part of that track record because most of the cash, certainly in a futures portfolio, most of that cash is just earning interest. And, and that interest has gone out completely uh, due to the low interest rate environment. Mm. So part of the lower return also comes from the fact that there is no return on your on your, on the cash. Now, that actually leaves you with the question, what what is the real alpha of these strategies? And I think that's where we as an industry have to, you know, you have to look as an investor for sure. You have to look careful at who has actually delivered real alpha and who has just delivered you know, risk-free rate of return plus a little bit of alpha. So, so uh, it, it's it's a good time for people to analyze different strategies. But time. So, so you mentioned time, and and time is important. You, you know, because you know a single sector. This is actually you bring up something I think is important. Just to deviate a little bit, I think part of the challenge with trend following is that there is a lot of opportunities for people to say, oh, I'm going to buy a book, how to do trend following, or I'm going to buy a piece of software, how to do trend following. And they may read that book, and that book may have some general rules that have worked in the past. And I'm not saying that that they are bad, but I think they, if you don't explain what is really important to have success in trend following, other than you know deep, deep research into the rules you use, it's two other elements. One is time and the other one is diversification. So let's start with diversification first. 
people who buy books on trend following or systems and say, yeah, I'm just going to trade the S&P and it'll be great. I fear that there is some people out there exploiting this where they offer these type of approaches, suggesting that people will make money from a trend following system by just trading stocks. I don't think that that necessarily is the case because one of the key elements of of the successful people who have been around for 30, 40 years is the diversification of the portfolio. We can for sure have four or five years, even at our firm, where we don't make any money in equities. It's not unusual. It doesn't mean that the markets are bad and they won't perform at some point. In fact, we truly believe that all markets have the ability to trend over the long run. And actually over 30 to 40 year cycles, you should make the same amount of money in all markets that you trade if you follow the same approach. But it doesn't mean you make the, you know, you know, you have a return for, for a five or 10 year period for that matter in a particular market or in a particular sector. So you need all the other sectors to do their part in those situations. And very few individual investors can do that. Mm. You know, it, partly it's difficult to build the systems and, and have something that you trust and you can rely on. But the other part is to have that running 24 5 on 50 plus markets in order to get that diversification. You need a big portfolio and you need to spend a lot of time doing it. And I have come in the last few years to appreciate more and more kind of the the, the done for you solution. I don't mean DU and then I mean just done for you. <laughs> That's what I thought you meant. <laughs> right. No, no. What I mean is that instead of trying to pursue this, oh, I want to be, you know, uh, you know, and I'm talking about, you know, private individuals who want to have success in, in, in their investment portfolio. I don't know that it is the best approach to try and do it yourself and spend a lot of time doing it rather than focusing on the slightly bigger picture, which is the overall asset allocation and find really good funds. I mean, there are a number of really good funds out there who have been doing it for a long time, who know what they do. Yes, you pay them a little bit. Some you pay more than others, but you pay a little bit. But then you can actually focus on things that are much more enjoyable than sitting in front of your screen all the time, you know, spend the time with your family, your kids or whatever it might be. So I think that's one part of, of the issue. The other part of the issue is, is just time. We all think that if you start something like an investment strategy that we want instant success, right? We want to make money on day one or the first month or the first year, et cetera, et cetera. But we forget that some of the most important, and oh, I wouldn't just say important, but some of the most influential and successful people in this industry, they didn't make money, a lot of money in the beginning. I mean, I've seen quotes where about Warren Buffett, for example, where it talks about that 99% of his wealth today was made after he turned 50. That's just hard and to believe. We, yeah. It's hard to believe, right? I, I, you know, I can't verify this, but I'm, I'm you know, I, I take it from a reliable source. But we have to remember that that he started doing this way before he turned 50, right? He probably did for 20 years be- before he turned 50. So, so the first 20 years compared compared to the to the next 30 odd years. It's just completely different as to where the actual wealth generation came from. Ray Dalio, who started in the 70s, actually pretty similar time as Don. After 10 years, he he pretty much almost closed shop, right? He 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 had some bad luck or bad drawdowns or whatever it was, and and he had to borrow four thousand dollars to to go on. He he let on all he or he let all his employees go, and and then he started from scratch again. He ended up building the largest and you know, quoted for being the most successful hedge fund in the world. So it just shows you that 
not all success <laughs> happens on, on day one. It really takes time. And and we see it as well in our own track record. We, uh, if you look at Don's track record, it is very successful. But we have to remember that, you know, half of that performance, given our return in the last five years, has come in the last five years out of a 44-year track record. Niels, you, you mentioned individuals like Ray Dalio, Warren Buffett, and obviously Don. And I'm just wondering, how difficult would it be for an individual to do this again? I know you said that you'd be better off putting your money into a good fund and spend time with family and rather than sitting in front of your computer. And like, for example, I explained to Michael Covell in the previous episodes that my own strategy at the time, it was a weekly trading strategy to remove the noise. And if there was a drawdown, I would do my best to ignore it and I'll revisit on a on the weekend and see where markets turn on a, on a Monday. And I suppose I was kind of late in the game in terms of where the financial crash at the time. And I was doing quite well up to that point following that particular strategy. But I know I come to the, the, the crash, I think it was started around I don't know, July 2008 perhaps was when the first kind of big drawdown was happening that everything that I followed, all the principles I followed, I just effectively threw out the window and I tried to scramble and move away my stop losses, which never got hit. Uh, then I kind of tried to short the market when I initially had a buy and then Ben Bernanke came out with an interest rate cut, which brought the markets back up again and I was short, so I kind of lost double on that and it was very chaotic and instead of uh, letting my stops hit and remove myself from the markets and I actually remember to, to be honest a few days before all that happened I got a call from the the trading platform I was on and just asking me about my trade trading positions and I think I only had about six I wouldn't have the 50 obviously that don't have I wouldn't be able to have that spread in terms of the asset allocation but I remember having wheat I think I had coffee uh, cocoa. I had an equity, the S and P, in there as well. So it was quite diversified, and I based it effectively on just price action rather than to the actual commodity or the the equity. I wasn't trading for those reasons. I was trading for the the price momentum or the trend. But I remember the call, and I didn't. It was on the tip of my tongue, and I was going to ask, tell him to close out all, out all my positions and short them, and I never did. I don't know why I didn't. And it was on the tip of my tongue and I said, no, no, it's okay. I'll, I've always felt that I'd go back to the computer and I think within about two or three days, everything just sort of turned because I think wheat at the time was over $14 and now it's, I think it's, I think I hit a low of 350. It's about 450 now, I think. I don't know. Oil, you know yourself, I was in oil as well. Mm. Uh, so, you know, things happen and you have to really adapt to it and effectively throw out all those principles I was following at that point in time. Well, you know, I, there, there is a saying that most people overestimate ideas and underestimate execution. And I think that is so true. It's one thing is to read a book about trend following and, and build a, uh, an approach. And another thing is to to uh, follow it. I mean, the the discipline that these firms, you know, employ in order to be successful over decades is not something everyone as human beings can do. And I think also there is a, there's a big difference. I mean, I think, I mean, to answer your initial question, can, can, can people still do this? Of course they can, right? I mean, 
you work long enough and hard enough at something and you can become usually pretty good at it, right? So so I, I don't think it's, it's you know, we'll still see new firms being founded today that in 10 years time will be very successful, I'm sure. No doubt about that. But there is a difference also between kind of literacy and fluency. I mean, it takes a long time to be fluent in something. I mean, it's almost like you can think about it when, I don't know whether you cook or, or, or your family cooks, but I mean, if you open a cookbook and, and you look at a beautiful cake and it has all the recipe right next to it, right? Then you start doing it. I'm pretty sure that the first few times you do it, it's not going to look exactly like the one you see on the picture, right? So there is a lot of trial and error, or as uh, you might say, trial and terror, meaning <laughs> you, meet, you, you need to find all the things that doesn't work until you find the things that work. And that is also something that will take time. So I'm not trying to discourage people from becoming trend followers. I think the principles of trend following can be applied to many things, even if it's just asset allocation. I mean, even if it's just something you use as a tool, which I touch on, I think, also in one of the books, uh, that you can use trend following for many things, really. So, yeah, no, I wouldn't discourage people from doing it, but I also want to encourage people to sometimes <laughs> maybe just focus on things that are, wow. frankly, a little bit more important in life than to sit in front of a screen because there are solutions out there where you don't pay an arm and a leg and you get you know you get a lot of expertise and and uh, people have to do their research they have to figure out you know the good guys from the bad guys and all of those things sure but that's the same with anything in life every time you 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 know you you choose a, a supplier of something you need to make sure that they know what they're doing but i've i've come to appreciate and it actually from from you know ray dalio's book also um, you know tony robbins book where he interviews a lot of the most successful investors in the world uh, i think they all agree that asset allocation is is really the key to their success and i i think it's i think it's worth taking into account especially if you are relatively young and starting out in your investment journey. I mean, if you've got 30, 40 years ahead of you, you know, a, a good asset allocation can do wonders for you. I think people underestimate this thing about the the compound effect of a portfolio, how much good it can do if you allow it enough, enough time. Niels, I know you touched on a little on track records or trend following, but I'm not sure if you explained how someone could deal with the drawdowns that is expected and has been visible in a lot of these type of uh, situations or these type of portfolios. And mm. it takes someone with immense discipline or systems, automated systems, or that removes the human irrational aspect of trying to trade like the way I try to do personally. But to be able to deal with these drawdowns and to also have proper risk management put in place to deal with them so that you're not over leveraged. Mm. And so if I was to look at a chart and I saw a nice returns and then this 20, 30% drawdown and then a reversal of it again, some people might might be frightened of that and how, you know, might put them off. Yeah, yeah. no, that's true. I mean, it, it, it is so true that this is one thing that I mean, I think keeps a lot of investors from fully embracing trend following. It is those track records where, from time to time, you'll have a deep drawdown, and they might compare that to, you know, a return stream of bonds, and they're going to look at the last 30 plus years, and we all know interest rates have gone down for that period of time. 
which may not be the case for the next 30 years but but it all looks very good and and the same with equities i mean we've we've had now almost 10 years of non-stop markets going up we've all forgotten how painful it was in 2008 but with trend following these drawdowns come on a much more regular basis and that's why i think that some managers are almost a little bit embarrassed by showing their track record because they feel investors will look at it in a negative way. I'll kind of tell you and share with you a very personal story about that, which has to do with my son. So my son, when he was nine years old, he had a cardiac arrest. And of course, the fortunate side of all of this is that he's still with us. So so that's the most important thing. But as you may know, it's only 5% of people who's, who get a, you know, suffer a cardiac arrest who survive. So yeah. so it's a pretty scary thing. At nine um, years of age. At the age of nine years, yeah. So again, knowing what you don't know and life will throw you the, the unexpected all the time, right? But, but the story I wanted to tell you is that, uh, you know, clearly when you have a cardiac arrest and, and then he, as he did, had to have a major heart surgery, it leaves you with a scar. It leaves you, in his case, with a pretty big scar because not all scars heal equally as we've learned. And a scar is something that, uh, you know, he will at least, you know, to this day will feel embarrassed about, right? He doesn't want to show this scar. And, and I think, you know, track records can be viewed a little bit like that, even though it's a maybe an extreme comparison, but it is something that you can be embarrassed about. But what people forget, and this is very, very important, that the people and the track records who are still here to show those scars, what they really show is that they survived. Because all the track records of firms that went out of business, they're not there anymore to have these historical drawdowns and making new highs, as you said, they're just gone. But those who have been around for a long time and who can still demonstrate to you that they have been able to make new highs after having some pretty big drawdowns from time to time, to me, it's a sign of strength. It's not a sign of weakness. So I, I encourage investors to look at these track records slightly differently than maybe, as you said correctly, you know, the gut reaction is, oh, no, this is not for me because look at that drawdown. Well, you know, look at the recovery. And the more drawdowns, the more recoveries you can make, the stronger I think the system is. And actually, there's a a great article by uh, Dr. Drews that talks about that the more robust the system, the more volatile it tends to be. And I think there's there's a lot of truth in that. Because you can optimize a system to, or a strategy to certain market conditions. And they look like we saw a lot in the volatility space where many people made significant amounts of money for a few years being mostly short volatility until February of 2018 when VIX went up by 100% in a day and they went out of business or were severely hurt in in that 24-hour time frame. So what trend following does differently is that we don't try to optimize for any particular environment. In fact, we try to make sure that that our approach can deal with an ever-changing environment, which is what reality is. I mean, things are never the same. So that's what you should be 
aiming for when you design these strategies. This is also why I'm a big fan of asset allocation, because I think asset allocation can be used to build portfolios that are not only safer, but actually better performing over time, because they will be able to deal with different types of markets. So, you know, diversification is important to help dampen the volatility, but but volatility is not necessarily a, a bad thing. And I think very often the seduction of safety is often more dangerous than the perception of uncertainty. And I think people need to be aware of that when they when they decide on their investment strategies. Niels, how much of, say, the academic work would you seem to adopt or would you be well ahead in terms of being practitioners? And say, for example, uh, one person that comes to mind, even though um, he is an academic, Nassim Taleb, and also a great track record in terms of his investments when he was dealing with volatility in the 1987 when everyone else was saying it was gone. And he said there's always the possibility that could happen because you touched on a few things like unknown risks. And mm. was is this something that you would, with Don Capital, take on board? Obviously, you would try to manage these, if you if it's possible, the unknown risks so that an account doesn't get severely disrupted. Yeah, I mean, our research team obviously look at a lot of different things in constructing models and and putting together the portfolio as a whole. So I'm sure they consider many of these things. And as I said before, often it's a matter of trying different things before you find things that really work. As a firm, we, we don't make a lot of changes to our approach. You know, some firms, they make kind of, they come up with new ideas all the time and they just put it in. But we we're very, very careful about making changes. But every every time you make a change, you might get it wrong. So there's a risk of that. So we, we spend a lot of time, typically two, three years in between making an improvement to our trading model. And our most profound improvements in recent time, at least, has actually gone to addressing the weaknesses I talked to you about earlier, which is the reversals and the non-trending environment. We've certainly made a big leap forward in something that has been known for many decades as weaknesses, but it's something that I think most managers have not really found a way to overcome. I feel we have found a, a much better way or a new way of dealing with it. And I think that shows up in in our performance. But, I, you know, I, I, I'm not familiar to that extent with all of Nassim's work, I, I, you know, uh, but I know he's done a lot of work. I, I actually came across... <laughs> More recently, his his latest book, which is called Skin in the Game, which is slightly different, but but it's somewhat related to what we do and certainly what we do at Don, because we actually only share in people's success. We don't charge management fees or anything like that. So we've never done that for 44 years. And and Nassim Tlaib talks about these things, how important skin in the game is on many levels. And he also mentions in the book something along the lines that Things that are designed by people without skin in the game, they often tend to grow more complicated. And and I, I don't know whether that's completely true or not, but but I think there's some truth to it. And I think as we started out this conversation talking about is, I think one thing we've not done so well in our industry is we haven't really explained in simple terms what we do. We have made it much more complicated 
And that's also why it's often been referred to as a black box. I think it's pretty much the opposite. I mean, most, you know, most managers in our industry, they, they can describe their rules in very simple terms and they can explain to people if this happens, then our system will react this way and this should be the outcome. So it's actually pretty much the opposite of a black box. The only thing is we don't really want to talk about the rules specifically because we, we try and keep that IP inside the company instead. But it's pretty pretty transparent and it's pretty easy as a concept as we talked about. You know, when markets move up, we want to be long. When markets move down, we want to be short. And and that's really how it, it, it works. But I mean, the next thing that, that is being talked about, I guess, and maybe it'll be talked about more and more is, of course, other types of intelligence like artificial intelligence. I'm no expert in that, but I have discussed with this with some of the guests on my podcast and some of them embrace it for sure. And some of them, you know, even the ones who, who are very successful, who run very large businesses with, you know, dozens of, of PhDs, et cetera, et cetera, surprisingly were they were a little bit more uh, cautious about artificial intelligence. And frankly, the, the fact that trend following has worked for so many decades using relatively simple rules, I don't know that it's a good idea to 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 make it more complicated than that. Although I do think innovation is important and I think you should always have a philosophy of constant improvement to what you do. But, you know, simple things are often the things that work best over the long run in, in my experience. Over the number of years, Niels, you know, I still like the trend following strategy, but I remove myself from the market. Mm-hmm. And now in hindsight, which is terrible to, to look back on and you know, we could always do back testing or look back on hindsight. I've may have missed out on good opportunities. No, I say may because it may have it could either have disrupted a portfolio again or blown on account. But um mm. you know, some people just may look at their return on investments, but if they decide not to participate in markets, the opportunity cost of not participating in the marketplace just could mean your money just sitting in a in a in a deposit account. Yeah, if they fear no, that. Yeah, that's true. and you. That's true. Before our conversation started, you referred to the importance of looking at ROI versus COI. If you want to elaborate <laughs> on that, right? It's something. It's it's relatively new, and maybe I haven't quite formulated it perfect in my own mind. But I think we, as an industry, and certainly in finance, we 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 think a lot about return on investment and and ROI. Something that we have a lot of focus on. And even if people think about it in that way, it doesn't always mean, as, as you point out for your own experience, it doesn't actually mean that they they do the right thing, right? So I've started thinking a little bit more about COI, which is, in my definition, so to speak, the cost of, of inaction or the cost of indecision and, and not doing what you should be, what you probably deep down know you should be doing, but but not doing it. So if you look at some of these firms that have had these very long track records, clearly, if you did not, if you had not allocated to to these kind of strategies as part of your overall portfolio, the cost of not doing so is pretty, you know, staggering. Frankly, I did some. I think in one of the books we talk about an example of. Just someone who allocated 20% to uh, a trend following strategy. And of course, I used our own performance record as the 
representative of trend following and then bonds and equities. And, you know, if you'd invested just 20% of the portfolio in, in, in the trend following side, the difference between, you know, only stocks and bonds and, and, and compared to stocks, bonds and, and trend following is pretty significantly on the surface. It may not look so big. I mean, it's around, you know, it, it's around 2% or so, a little bit more than that, 2% per year. But 2% per year for, say, a 25-year period or 30-year or 40-year period, that becomes significant. And I think what we, what we forget sometimes that, you know, if you don't do it, this can really mean the difference between retiring when you're 67 or 70 years old and being, you know, on, on, on a pretty restricted way of living because now your, your income is gone and your, um, you know, you have to live from, from your, your savings. But if you did it and you built, you know, and, and, and had the benefit of this extra return every year for such a long period of time, that might actually put you in a position where you, you could retire early or you could, you know, continue to live the life that you've always done because your portfolio is just worth so much more. And I think when you start putting it a little bit in those terms and not just looking at pure numbers, but what does it really mean, you know, on, a, on an emotional uh, level as well, I think then maybe the mindset can shift a little bit and perhaps more people are more open for it. And the other thing, of course, we shouldn't forget and that is, if you do combine, like some of your, you know, Nobel Prize winning guests have been working on, I mean, if you do combine non-correlated assets in a portfolio, it's not only that your return side goes up, it actually also means that your risk goes down. That's the, that's the beauty of it, in my opinion, that it's, and the funny thing is, I mean, the first report I read about these things was probably back in 19. 83 when Dr. Lindner's paper came out about how to combine you know stocks and bonds and manage futures and of course they redid that study the CME group republished the study and in 25 years after and of course it still confirms the 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 theory so there's never been a white paper written to contradict this fact yet so many people don't really want to embrace it and that's what i find interesting about how the the human brain behaves and how we can look at things differently. And for a lot of people, they haven't quite convinced themselves that, that this is something that might look risky on the surface, but when you combine it with a, what they already have, it actually reduces the overall risk of what they have and it helps get them a better return. That's, I don't know, it's something people should continue to explore, I think. Niels, you were saying you're all on for new technologies when you refer to AI and explore, not even all on for AI, but just new technologies and embracing them and exploring them and seeing do they work or not. But what about new types of investments, uh, not vehicles, but I suppose new types of commodities or equities? And what I'm referring to really are the currency cryptos. Do you explore those or have you explored those as a possible means of integrating them into a fund at Don Capital or even on a personal level and how trend following actually applies to that because it's, it must be like it is something that's very, extremely volatile whether that suits your work at trend at Don capital mm -hmm. sure now i can say at, at at certainly for 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 don this is way too early for us to to get interested in not as a concept i mean we this is again this is what i i think is beautiful about trend following is that it's completely agnostic to 
the underlying market, right? Whether it's lean hawks or whether it's cryptocurrencies or whether it's the S&P, it does not matter. So I think, again, it goes to the strength of the strategy at its core. Now, crypto may well be interesting over time because it's a non-correlated return stream. So that's in itself interesting, I think. The, the problem crypto has at the moment is, you know, implementation, Two, you have, it's simply not liquid enough. Even now that it's on a futures exchange, which is great, but there's not enough turnover. There's not enough history for systems to analyze for you to do the research. So, no, it's way too early for, for us as managers, even though some managers have already done it, but it's not something we would look at from our point of view yet. On a personal level, I find it interesting and I certainly wouldn't discard it, but it's not something I have personally embraced. But I, and you know, it's, I follow it and I think new markets will occur and whether you agree with them or not, if you're just looking at purely from an investment point of view and trying to remove yourself and your own biases, because that's a big part of what we should be doing when it comes to investment is to be complete, remove the emotions of what we do, then I think it is an interesting development and I'm sure there will be some other markets, but they have to become liquid. They have to become fully legit, so to speak, if I can use that word. is uh, maybe not the right word to use, but, but it has to be a little bit more like normal futures markets for us to be interested in, 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 in adding it to our portfolio or even to a point where we could start doing some analysis uh, on it. But actually, another market which kind of is a good example is the VIX. Yes. Right. So the VIX uh, came on board not that long ago, I think around 2000 and three or four or thereabouts. And so that's only been around for 14 years or so. And I think it's one of the most traded futures contracts in the world today. So uh, yeah, I mean, with time, again, going back to this point about time, um, I mean, things can change and, and you can find good opportunities in markets that may just be in their infants today. I'm wondering, is trading the fix somewhat a, like, a like a risk management strategy? given the volatility that's because uh, this volatility we seem to come up out of the blue obviously that's the nature of us you know and the fix spikes and then it comes down and people get burned but having trading the fixed strategy could compensate any potential losses that the, you could hit in the market yeah i mean the vix i don't think you can trade it successfully as a trend follower so so here's you know that's the interesting thing because just the way it it behaves like you said so we, we actually do trade the VIX at done, but we don't. that's the only thing we do outside trend following. So we trade it in a different way using different techniques and so on and so forth. But the returns that we can generate from the VIX are non-correlated to what we do in the trend following space. And therefore, it makes sense to have a small allocation to this space. And, and actually, it did help us in in February during those uncertain days we, we had. So in that sense, you know, we, we do like the idea of having different return streams as part of the overall program that we offer our clients. And so the VIX is definitely something because it's liquid, right? Mm -hmm. And there's enough history to to analyze and study it. So so yeah, that I mean that's an interesting Interesting market for, for sure. But again, going back to trend following, I mean, never put too much reliance on any one market. So for us, it's just one of 54 markets, right? Even if we you know, allocate a little bit more than, 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 the, than the others because it, it is so unique and so different. But it should never be a dominant part of, of any one portfolio. And also going back to your you know, initial experience trading six markets or so, 
in trend following. I, I, I unfortunately don't think that that is enough diversification nowadays because you do end up with having a lot of risk and exposure in, in, in one market if you only have six. And if then all of them go against you at the same time, you know, and you've got nothing else working for you, that's where you can quickly not only lose a lot of money, you get discouraged by the strategy and you end up selling the strategy you most need right before you most need it. Niels, I have to congratulate you on your two recent books, How to Master and Manage Futures, Even If You've Never Traded Before, co-written by Katie Kaminsky, and also The Many Flavors of Trend Following, co-authored with Hari Krishnan. They're great reads, something that I'm personally interested in, in both of those topics, futures and also trend following. And I'd love to find out how you got to write these books, or what was the purpose, or where did the content come from, or... What what's the reason for writing these books? Sure, sure. So before I forget, let me just say that why don't we make one of the books available to to your audience and 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 your followers? So I will before we end our conversation today, I'll give out a link where they can download one of the books for free, just so they can get going and and there's no barrier to learning about this strategy. So I'll definitely do that. Now I think to answer your question, I I mean, I wanted to to write something or produce some con- a different content to just doing podcasts. And I want it to be something very different to what you find in the investment world. And specifically, I guess, I wanted to, I wanted to put passion into the, the finance world. And I, I hope the books, if nothing else, they demonstrate that there's a lot of passion between me and my co-authors for this topic. So it's written in a language that you, I don't think you'll find in any other finance books. So people you know, be aware of that when you read it. But I think it also has to be easy to to consume. It's uh, You can read it in an afternoon, drink a couple of cup of coffees or teas, and, and you'll probably work your way through one of these books. Because I also find that even though there's been some great publications, and I mentioned one of them earlier today, and of course, your previous guest, Mike Covell, has written a number of books on, on trend following and helped you know distribute the, the knowledge about this. However, I also know from personal experience that if the book is too long, I never get to finish it. <laughs> so, so I wanted to make sure that, that people did not run into that problem. So they're not long and they're written hopefully in a fun, engaging, but also, you know, there is a serious message in them. And here's the thing. You don't need to be perfect to get started with trend following. You really just need to get started. I mean, that's the thing. And I think there's enough in these books to get you started. And that's really what I wanted to achieve with them. But like yourself, you produced a lot of great content by interviewing people. And this is hopefully just another way for me to deliver content in a different format. Because some people, frankly, they would rather sit and read a book where that they can, you know, that they can print out or physically buy compared to, you know, listening to people on their mobile phone. And that's perfectly fine. Some people like both. So you, you, some of the content is coming from your own experience plus conversations you had on your own podcast, Top Traders Unplugged? 
Yeah, I mean, I think you and I started podcasting more or less at the same time in 2014. And I don't think any of us at the time knew how impactful that medium would become or that media platform would become. Podcasting has really grown and and I, I love it. You know, I really love that format. I mean, I think that the connection you built with your audience by them listening to your voice, I think that there is a something there's an emotional connection that we can build that no white paper and even a book can't build that so i it's not to substitute podcasting i think that is still uh, one of my favorite ways of expressing and creating content but i do also like and i've seen this coming back a little bit in the online space that people go offline again and instead of just creating, you know, online ebooks, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I know the book I'm going to give to your audience today, it is a downloadable book, right? Um, but I mean, in theory, they could also, um, you know, I have printed versions of the book as well. And I and I think that's that's something that I've come to appreciate more that instead of just reading a, an, an online newsletter, some people have now started to go back and print the newsletter and you receive it in your mailbox. And, and there's something wonderful, in my opinion, about that experience as well, almost going back in time to deliver things physically rather than just online. So anyways, I mean, it's, you know, it's just another way for me to try and share the message. And what I found really is that, you know, there's in, in recent years, there's been so much focus on people trying to get more attention, like, you know, how can I get a bigger platform? How can I get more likes on Facebook or retweets or more sales if we're, you know, wearing our commercial hats? And, 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 and you know, deep down, it's how can I get more attention, right? And that's not an insignificant question at all. But there's another question, which is, what are you spending all your energy focused on or while you're doing that, getting the attention? I mean, what are you giving your attention to? You know, that's, that's really the key question in, in, in my opinion. You know, what, what's worthy of our time that we will actually devote our attention to? And if we give, if we did, if devote on giving, you know, attention to our audience and people who want to learn more, I think a lot of the other things, uh, well, first of all, I think it's a more, it's it's a nicer way of, of of exchanging things instead of focusing on what I can get. But it, I, th- I like the idea of what I can give more. And I think if we serve our platforms like you serve your platform and I serve my platform, if we do that, I think everything else will will take care of itself. Podcasting has opened a lot of opportunities for me. I I host the Managed Futures podcasts for the CME Group, the largest futures exchange in the world. I mean, I'm mm. privileged to do that. And I, I meet a lot of really interesting people doing that. Um, and I still, fortunate enough, uh, a lot of the most successful managers will come onto my platform and share their experience as well. And I think what you do and what I do and what other people do in this space is that we add something to the conversation. And it's up, for, it's up to people, of course, to take away what they feel they can use and apply it in their own world. But but at least there's a lot more content and I think a lot more good content out there than compared to before. Great. And Niels, rather than going alone and investing in done, is there, mm-hmm. I know I could explore this myself, but just that we have the conversation now, is there a minimum to which Don would request your capital as part of their uh, their asset allocation. Sure, 
Sure, sure. I'm sure when I'm sure people realize and when when we, when we start talking about these things, we have to make all these disclaimers about you know past performance not being indicative of future results and all of that. And that is true. And people have to really think carefully and read you know all the risk disclosures carefully before they make any investment. But once that's done and and they if they are comfortable, the great thing and this is not only portrays to Don, but it portrays to also to Don. And that is in the last few years, more investment vehicles have become available. So when I started in this industry almost 30 years ago, it was really for the for the wealthy investor who could get involved in this industry or in hedge funds in general. Nowadays, we have a couple of different vehicles that you can use. If you're based in the US, for example, there are now mutual funds that people can invest through. I think it's a thousand dollars you can start with and you can get exposure to not only Don, but also to some of our peers in their mutual funds or 40 act funds as they uh, are referred to. Also in the in, in the European space, and actually I think this goes for Asia as well, because I think the usage fund structure, which we know from, from Europe, which is again, it's a mutual fund type structure that allows investors, if the funds are registered for, for retail investors as well, to start with as little as $1,000 or euros or whatever currency they the fund is offered in to, to, to get started, right? Because it's all about getting started and getting comfortable. You shouldn't start, you know, at full speed. You should build up your confidence like we tell our children when they're young and they're trying to learn to walk. I mean, you know, take it slow before you start, you know, and take a big leap. So for Don, uh, we also offer a usage fund and, and people can invest in that. And of course, if you go to larger investment size, typically what I see in the industry is that once you get to around $100,000 or more, that's where the fees come down significantly. Like uh, as I mentioned before, we we don't even ask we don't even ask for a management fee, so it's not really those fees. But but I'm thinking about the the cost of the these platforms will charge a fee, and they they, they become lower as you move into to the hundred thousand dollar plus investment size. And then you have for us, but also for our competitors, you know, there is kind of offshore structures where. Typically, for regulatory purposes, it's $100,000 or more. Again, in those structures, because they're offshore. And this is really where the industry got started, right? So these are the fund structures that have been around for a long time. Typically, you get slightly lower costs again. So the onshore in Europe or in the US are more usually more expensive than the offshore fund. So I would say to answer your question in a very long-winded <laughs> way, uh, <laughs> that you, know, you can get started nowadays even with smaller amounts. And for those who want to invest $100,000 or more, you can get started uh, at very low, at very reasonable, at very low cost, in my opinion. And I think it's more important just to get started than than anything else nowadays. Niels, what would be the main takeaways from your books? Like I was looking at it and you had conversations with Mike from a is it AHL? Yeah, that was one of them. <laughs> That's one of the quotes from the conversations I did with the founders of AHL. Yeah, there's a little bit of that in there. Yeah, know. so from your exposure to speaking with some of these trend followers that you've touched on in the book as well as your own podcasts, what would be, say, the top maybe two or three main takeaways that you have seen from this and may even personally follow? Right, so I mean, I think 
one is one of the things we try and do in the books is really just to very briefly explain what trend following slash managed futures is all about so that people can understand it. Hopefully, you know, if not for the first time, but they can certainly they should be able to to follow what we write and say, OK, so that's what it's all about. Uh, so that's one thing. And I think that's important because we do need to be comfortable in whatever investment decisions we make. So and the first way of getting that comfort is to say, OK, so that's what they're doing. So I think hopefully people will take that away. The other thing, of course, we, we try to do in the books is really to explain the benefits of, of trend following and, and the benefits of adding this as part of the portfolio that, that we can actually by you know, we can actually really lower risks in the portfolios that they get invested in. And also at the same time, certainly if you use the right trend follower, you can increase the overall return of your portfolio. This is no this is not a new concept. But it's a very important concept. So we we make that point and we explain that as well. And there's some practical experiences. There's some examples where we've looked at what the returns would have been, again, with all the risk disclaimers that we have to put when you do that. And kind of try to put things together in a simple way where people have enough information. It's not meant to be the total series on, on, on managed futures or trend following, but it's enough information for people to get going. And hopefully that's actually the main takeaway from people is to take action. I mean, again, we go back to this, the cost of inaction. I think it's way too high. I think people need to be open-minded and, of course, look at all the research out there, which will confirm what, what you and I have been talking about today, but also give it enough time. I mean, this is not going to be an overall success necessarily, but over time, it, it really does make a, a huge difference. So anyway, so if they, I mean, if they want to get get started. I mean, here's a way to get started uh, so I don't forget. So I created this link for people to freely download one of the books. And so if they go to top traders unplugged forward slash Frank, then they should be taken to a, a page where they can put in their details as we now have to under the new GDPR, I think it's called. We have to get details and consents and all of that. So uh, go to top traders unplugged forward slash Frank, put in your details and you will receive a copy of one of the books. And there's some other free resources that people can start with. And one of them, which I think it's part of the end of the book, it's a little tool that will help people maybe think about their own mindsets about investing. So it's a more general tool. And they can they can see that on, it's called myportfoliosquare.com. And so if they go and they fill out those questions, they'll get a summary where they can see how they score, how they think they score themselves into these different mindsets about investing and where they want to go to. Because I think one of the biggest things in order for us to take action is that we need to convince ourselves that we need to become better at something. And I think this tool will help people to identify where they may need to focus a little bit more of their attention when it comes to that. So we need to convince ourselves rather than you and I are trying to convince people it's actually better for them to convince themselves to, uh, you know, what to do next. I just clicked on the link there. Actually, I typed it in. So that's toptradersunplugged.com forward slash Frank. Yeah, it looks actually oh, yes. absolutely fantastic. Yeah, it looks great. I, I think I forgot the dot com. You did, yeah. Didn't so I? that's why yeah, I wanted I to make so sure to top, that. Yeah, that was very <laughs> kind. So toptradersunplugged.com forward slash Frank. Yes, that is. And I, I'm very grateful, and hopefully, my listeners will click in and get this copy for free. And sure. I'm very grateful for you to share that with us. 
Well, I'm grateful that you wanted to uh, invite me back on your podcast. It's it's great to be here. It's great to discuss these things. I know you 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 share a lot of your knowledge. You teach. You do lots of great things. And I think the more we can do that collectively, the the bigger the impact. And I think that's what it's all about, right? We have an, a finite time on this earth, and the bigger the impact we can have for the better, of course. I think that's a very worthy way of living our lives. And as well as that, I think it's great that my listeners are introduced to you now and your podcast. I could, to be honest, I could listen to you all day. Uh, fantastic voice. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny people say. I mean, I I'm grateful for for your comment, but it's it's one of it was one of those things that I uh, and I, I don't know that 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 it is such a great voice, but. It's one of those things that I really had to get used to when I started podcasting yes. is to listen to my own voice. I'm sure you had the yes. same. I mean, it's so different from the way we think it is. And uh, no, I really, really appreciate it, Frank. I, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, our conversation. I hope we'll do it again and I will, uh, I'll do my best to, to share your podcast. You've had some fantastic guests, you know, Nobel Prize winners and practitioners of things. And uh, I'll certainly do my best to, to share that uh, with my tribe and, you know, We'll hopefully spread the word as much as we can. Niels Kastrup-Larsson, you are an economic rock star as always and an honorary member, I'm sure, at this stage. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for joining me. No, thanks so much, Frank. Take care. All the best. Great, Niels. Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.